Pastor Scott Carlson. He is from Wahoo Community Church. Let's uh, welcome Pastor Carlson. Thank you. Good to, be, good to be back with you guys. I always enjoy coming and opening the Word of God together with you. I don't know what you expect when you get uh, come to chapel. It's early in the morning. But this morning, I'm going to challenge you, encourage you to think deeply. We're going to think deep thoughts together. And I'm going to start off with the deep thought of by asking the question, what is reality? What is real? For the more practically minded among us, that question annoys you because you don't have time to waste thinking maybe such deep thoughts or such abstract thoughts. But the question of reality, that is, the question is of is what we're experiencing now reality or is there a greater or a different reality? That question is not a new question. It's been asked by poets and philosophers throughout history and from all parts of the globe. In ancient times, the philosopher Socrates described as humanity, described humanity as prisoners chained in a cave. And as uh, humanity, we're in this cave chained, we're facing a wall. Behind us is a fire and other people that are, are working puppets. The prisoners can't see the fire. They can't see the people with the puppets. All we see in front of us are the shadows cast against the cave wall as the fire illuminates the puppets and casts their shadow. These shadows, Socrates said, are the only reality we see. It may be the only reality we ever know, and we're perfectly content with this reality. But Socrates said, if we only had a teacher who could turn around and see the fire and see the puppeteers behind us, he could tell everybody else that this is just a shadow of the reality that is to come. In more modern times, we haven't relied on Socrates to think this deeply about this question. We've relied on movies like The Truman Show. The Truman Show is exactly what I'm talking about. Truman thought he was, was living out reality, and in some sense, he was. He had a real life, he had a real wife, he had a real job, but those things were actually not as real as he supposed them to be. But more important than philosophers and poets and more important than movie producers and actors, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12 said, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I am fully known. So even the Apostle Paul tried to tell us that what we think is so real these relationships that we live and die for, this, this wealth that we, we give our lives to accumulate, to purchase land and houses and food and sustaining things and entertainment, all of these things 
that we devote ourselves to that we think are so real are only shadows of a greater reality, a dim reflection of something greater beyond our senses at this moment. And once we realize that what we think is real is just a shadow of a greater reality, it becomes very practical for us as Christians. In fact, one of the ways you can tell how a Christian is doing in their walk with Christ is to examine what they think is real. Let me give you some examples. When you're afraid, when something makes you afraid, that moment of fear, you're saying, whatever's making me afraid is more real than the fact that God can protect me. When we as Christians worry, because worrying is a sin according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, when we worry, what we're saying is that our tragedy is reality and God's provision is not. And sadly, most of all, when we sin, what we're saying is that the pleasures I get from doing this wicked act is more real than our holy God, than even the eternal fires of hell. So it becomes very, very practical very quickly for us to examine what do I think is real. Jesus told the parable of a farmer who had a great harvest, and because he had such a high yield, he built more barns to hold all of his crops, all of his grain. And he thought, uh, sat back and he thought, wow, this is great. I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry because I have so much stuff. And that very night, God says, your life is required of you. So that the farmer thought that his wealth was his reality when, in fact, God as judge was the greater reality. Let me ask you, is the accumulation of wealth your reality? Or are you storing treasures in heaven? In Peter's first letter, where I encourage you to join me, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter is concerned that his readers view everything in light of a greater reality than they are experiencing. They're experiencing trials. Many of them were suffering for their faith. And even if we don't suffer for our faith, we all know what it's like to suffer. And sometimes those things that cause us to suffer seem so incredibly real. It's kind of like, think of my hand as a trial. And even though I can see all of you, when I put my trial in front of my face, you guys are all blurred. And if I do an especially good job, I can't see you at all. And that's kind of the way it is with trials. Sometimes our trials are right before us, and they're all we can see, even though there's this other thing to see out here. All we can see is our trial. And Peter is wanting to warn his people, don't view this trial, this suffering, as your greater reality. In fact, he, he says that the, there's a real danger that these trials, these tragedies, will take our attention off of the greater reality, which is Jesus. And I think you, you, you guys have already read 
a little bit about this, that even though this seems like a, a reality now and Jesus seems far away, it says in 1 Peter 1, in verse 8, it says, though you have not seen him, okay, he doesn't seem as real to us maybe as he could because we haven't seen him. Even though we haven't seen him, what do we do? We love him. And even though we don't see him right now, we believe in him, yet we greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. See, Peter's saying, yeah, you have trials. And even though you haven't seen Jesus, we, we still love him. And, and, and we need to stop focusing all of our attention on the bad stuff that's around us that can distract us from the greater reality, the greater good, which is loving Jesus and rejoicing in him. So throughout his letter, Peter challenges his fo the followers of Jesus, don't be distracted, don't be dismayed by present trials and even present temptations. Instead, what Peter says is, fix your hope completely on the grace of that is to be brought to you by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't be distracted by these things, this reality here, but understand the greater reality of Jesus coming to you in all of his kindness. Fi fix your hope on that. Let that be your greater reality, as it were. Follow along as I read verses 13 through 21 of 1 Peter 1. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with imperishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Interesting thing here that I want to talk about just as we get started. Look at verse two of first Peter one. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. But not just you. It says there in verse 20 that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So that you and Jesus are linked in this greater reality of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. These verses are Peter's encouragement for you not to settle for lesser loves than Jesus, even though they seem so real right now. To not settle for lesser joys than Jesus, even though that's the way you used to live before you knew Christ. 
We read in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. But here's the, the key phrase of this verse. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I'm going to define for you quickly hope. I'm going to give you first just the English definition, and then I want to give you a more biblical definition, a more refined definition. Hope, as we can all imagine, is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's this feeling we have that things are going to get better. This expectation we have that something good is going to happen. And sometimes the way we use hope, hope becomes an end in itself. We don't know what good thing is coming, but we hope that something's coming better than now. And we hope. But in the Bible, hope is not just this idea of something good happening sometime down the future. In the Bible, hope takes an object. So if you're thinking English with me for a minute, the verb hope in the Bible must take an object. It's not just this idea of good feelings, that something good is going to happen sometime. It's, I hope that someone will do something in the future to bless me. And of course, we know that that someone is God, and that something is eternal life, great reward, eternal peace, absence from sin, all that is good about being with God in his world. That's ours when Jesus returns, or as it says in verse 13, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So hope is trusting God for something yet undone. It's like faith. It's like faith in the sense that I'm putting my trust in Jesus to do something that I need him to do. But faith is more of a present reality, more of this is what Jesus is doing for me now, how it affects me now. Hope is like faith in that it just projects it forward. I hope that God, I trust that God will do something for me in the future, especially what he says he will do. It isn't merely a feeling of something better that might come. It's a, a faith, a trust that God will do something great in the future at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we ignore the distractions of this present time and we're challenged to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us. Completely the, the word is finally, fully, to the exclusion of other things. It's, it's uh, being so focused on one thing that everything else kind of dims in comparison. We fix our hope that completely, that single-mindedly, on the grace that is to come. That is the only verb in this verse, fix your hope even though it looks like there are a couple of other, or I shouldn't say verb, only a command, even though it looks like there's a couple of other commands earlier, those are actually participles. And uh, I don't know if you like English or not. I love English. So participles often will uh, modify or they'll explain a verb or a command. And so the command is fix your hope. 
How do we do that? Well, let's throw in some participles. The first participle we see is prepare your minds for action. We fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us by preparing our minds for action. Literally, that phrase, prepare your minds for action, is gird up the loins of your mind, which is a strange thing, but it's something that was very practical back in the day because soldiers who were fighting would be wearing these long robes. And if you've ever tried to run a race in a dress, you've probably lost because it, we get caught up. Well, I don't. I've never run a race in a dress. You get caught up in the dress, and you trip and you fall, right? Roman soldiers would have this robe, dress for lack of a better term, uh, and, and in order to fight without falling down and getting tripped up, they would bring that robe up and they would tie it around their waist so that they could have freedom to run and move. So we fix our hope completely on the grace of God by girding up the loins of our mind, that is, we tie up anything that might get in the way and distract us from that hope. And, and we, we move with purpose. We move with ease. We're not tripped up by the things of the world. Another participle there in verse 13, keep sober in spirit. There needs to be a seriousness about us. We're not careless about the Christian life. We don't just listen to any music that comes out. We don't just watch any television show that comes out or watch any movie. We don't just go the same places other people go, but we're serious. And we say, does this really um, reveal the hope that I have in the world to come, or is this exciting some illicit pleasure or lust in my life? Is this something that I'm, I'm, I'm letting uh, happen because of my flesh or something that I'm doing because I'm fixing my hope on the grace that is to come. I got to be serious about this. I got to think about things that unbelievers, they don't think about, they don't worry about it. You know, if they feel a little guilty later, they'll, they'll get over it, right? We have to be serious about fixing our hope completely on things to come. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 7, he says, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He says we need to be praying seriously. We need to be serious because the day of the Lord, the revelation of Jesus is coming soon. The end is near. And then he says, another, another uh, participle here is in verse 14, as obedient children don't be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. In chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, the time, is ar the time already passed is sufficient for you to carry out the, Gentile, the desires of the Gentiles. That is, you had enough time to do all of that lusting and, and wicked passion kind of thing before you came to know Christ. So stop doing it. You've done it enough already. We are instead to not be conformed to those, the, those uh, lusts which were ours in ignorance, but verse 15, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. I wonder if we shouldn't think of our relationship with Jesus as that of an arranged marriage, which is not a bad illustration because we are called the bride of Christ, right? In the Old Testament, Israel was called the bride of the Lord. 
So think of our relationship with Jesus as an arranged marriage. You haven't met your future spouse, right? You haven't met him. Um, You've heard about him. Uh, your father has told you all kinds of things about him in the word, right? You know that he's, he's wonderful. You know that he's beautiful. And you can't wait to meet your future spouse. But it's a long time off, and there's a lot of other competing loves in my life. Sometimes I doubt. It's like, really? Am I going to actually be married? Um, is this actually going to happen? It seems so unreal to me. And sometimes we're tempted to and attracted by uh, those lesser loves because they seem so real. And sometimes, unfortunately, people just start shacking up with these lesser loves. They start giving in to these other competing interests that would draw them away from their arranged marriage. So Peter's saying, don't be that way. Don't settle for lesser loves. Don't settle for lesser joys. We desperately want our companion, our our brother, our our bridegroom. He's far away and we're tempted. We're tempted to give in and settle for less because they're here and now. But the person who loves Jesus truly will not settle for anything less than him. We're not going to be tempted if our hope is fixed completely on things to come. We're not going to be tempted by lesser joys than what Jesus promises to offer fully when he returns. Instead, he says, be holy, be holy. In Leviticus, we see this phrase, be holy, therefore be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am a holy The entire, all the Old Testament law was for the purpose of of Israel being set apart as different from the other nations. You're different. And Peter, we're told to sanctify sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. We are to make him holy. He's to be different for us than the rest of the world. In in 1 Peter 2.5, we are called a holy priesthood. We're set apart. We have a different mission than everybody else in the world. In chapter 3 and verse 5, we've talked about marriages because sometimes relationships tempt us to give in to a sin that that, uh, is, is a lesser thing than what Jesus would offer. And he calls the women there who... Uh, submit to their husbands, holy women of old. They're set apart. They're different from all the other women around. We are called to be holy as God is holy. We are to be set apart. And just briefly, going quickly over the last verses for sake of time, uh, we are to conduct ourselves in holy fear because we will stand before our Father. And I think we're going to be pretty pretty ashamed if when we stand before our Father, we have to admit that, yeah, I, I really couldn't wait for my arranged husband, as it were. I, I just gave in to whatever passion I, I had at the time because it seemed more real to me. I think we're going to be very ashamed. And I think that many of us who profess to be followers of Jesus, if that's our way of life, I, I think we're going to realize in the end that maybe we weren't all that faithful or trusting in Jesus as we thought we were. 
we are to conduct ourselves, it says in verse 17, in fear. Why? Because we were purchased, not with, with perishable things that seem so real to us now, gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. When we talk about fear, it's not just fear of punishment. It's fear as in honor, fear as in reverence. Th think of it this way. Um, when you think of God, the idea of sinning against him or doing something that would grieve the Holy Spirit, that should so sicken you that it's repulsive. That's what it means to fear God. You should be sick to your stomach at the idea of willfully doing something to dishonor him. We fear God, and one of the reasons we fear God is because we realize the cost of adoption, the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, just as we look at these verses, I want to, I, I want to share with you the person of Peter, because uh, th there's a couple of different kinds of people in the, in, the, in the Christian life. There are those who seem to be like the perfect Christian. They're always faithful. They, they seems like they never do anything wrong. If you're that kind of person, I love you a lot, but you annoy me because I'm more like Peter. I struggle all the time. It's like, think about Peter's life. Peter's, Peter knows what it's like to be torn by lesser loves and lesser joys than Jesus. And he was one who loved Jesus most of all when he was on this earth. But he knows what it's like. Remember before the crucifixion, he says, even if I have to die for you, I won't deny you. I won't forsake you. A few hours later, the rooster crows. He had denied Jesus three times. Jesus, or Peter was the one who had enough faith to walk on the water. As long as he kept Jesus in his sight, he was good, but the waves distracted him, right? Jesus said, oh, you have little faith. Peter was distracted by the things of this world. Peter, at one point, was hailed as inspired of God. And in the very next paragraph, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter was this, th this guy who understood the pull of the world. And he's challenging you, fix your hope completely on Jesus. Because we have trials. And, and in 1 Peter 5, the, the devil is, is roaming around like a lion, seeking whom he may destroy. We've got to be serious about this. Our love of Jesus cannot be so superficial that when trials come, when lesser, love come, lesser loves come, we give in. We are called to a much higher purpose. Therefore, be self-controlled and love Jesus earnestly. We'll, we'll leave you with a couple of questions for you to contemplate. First question, what would change in my life if I understood Jesus as the greater reality than the things of the world? What would change in my life if Jesus were really the greater reality compared to the things of the world? What would change in my life, if I understood that Jesus was the greater reality compared to the things of the world.
And then very practical, what earthly loves woo me to settle for them now rather than waiting for Jesus later? What earthly loves woo me to settle for them now rather than waiting for Jesus later? What earthly loves woo me now to settle for them rather than wait for Jesus later? Let me pray for you guys. Father, I'm thankful for for Peter, the author, the apostle, because he's a real person. He knows the tug of this world. He knows the challenge to love Christ. But Lord, even though we haven't seen Jesus, we love him. Grow us in our love for Christ. Even though we don't see him now, we rejoice. We believe. Lord, build our faith. Help us, none, none of us here, to sacrifice the great joy of being with Jesus for the lesser joy of anything else in this world. Lord, help us to fix our hope completely on the grace to come. In Jesus' name, amen.